Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open now your holy word, help us to receive it for what it truly is, the inerrant, infallible word of God. Help us to hear you as you speak to us, penetrate into our hearts and minds, and shape us as the potter shapes the clay. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 10. You'll find this on page 797 in the Pew Bibles. Zechariah chapter 10. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, From him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. One of the most well-known chapters in the entire Bible is Psalm 23, which we read earlier. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In this psalm, David portrays the Lord as our good shepherd, who guides us to green pastures, who leads us to rest and to drink in quiet waters, even comforts us through the valley of the shadow of death. 
But that's not the only place in the Bible where this imagery of the sheep and the shepherd is found. In fact, the Bible is absolutely filled with this metaphor of sheep and shepherd, for it captures a foundational spiritual truth, a foundational truth about our spiritual state. I like the way that Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says that when the Bible calls us sheep, it is a very well-meant spiritual insult. When you think of sheep, perhaps your mind is filled with images of warm, fluffy creatures and you just melt inside. But the reality is that sheep are dumb animals that are vulnerable and needy. They're constantly getting lost, wandering off into danger. They can easily be preyed upon by wolves. They need constant supervision. And so when the Bible says you are a sheep, it's insulting you. It's saying you need a shepherd, a leader, a protector, a provider. Most of all, you need the Lord, your shepherd. But you also need godly human leaders that the Lord will provide for you. And so this chapter, it begins with a focus on the Lord's provision for his people as their good shepherd, providing rain. But then it goes on to say also he will provide good leadership for his people. And the second half focuses on the Lord's salvation of his people through a second exodus to come. All throughout the passage, the Lord shows himself to be the good shepherd that his people need. The question for you this morning is, where do you look for provision? Where do you turn for guidance and leadership? Where do you look when you need hope? In all these things, are you trusting in the Lord, your good shepherd? Do you recognize Do you realize that you are what the Bible says you are, that you are a sheep and you need to trust in the Lord, your good shepherd? So we'll look at our passage in three parts this morning. First, trust the Lord, the one true shepherd. Second, the Lord provides leadership for his flock. And third, the Lord saves his flock through a second exodus. So first, Trust the Lord, the one true shepherd. Our passage opens with a very practical exhortation to the people of his day. In verse 1, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. So here the Lord is speaking through Zechariah the prophet, calling the people to trust him to provide them with rain to water the crops. Nowadays, perhaps you think, food, where does it come from? It comes from the grocery store. And we forget that it's actually the same today as it was in ancient Israel. You need rain to make the crops grow to provide food. The Lord is the one who is sovereign over all things, sovereign over the weather. Drought, that is a lack of rain, leads to famine. Famine leads to death. Back then, they didn't have the modern systems of irrigation, modern systems of food preservation that would give them an extra buffer. But at the end of the day, everything depends on rain. In fact, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt to the promised land of Canaan, he had pointed out the differences between Egypt and Canaan. Egypt was watered by a river, and it used irrigation. 
But Canaan was a land that was absolutely dependent on the seasonal rains. And in part, that was in order to teach God's people to trust in him. And the Lord also made it clear that if they were disobedient, he could withhold the rain. He would turn the rain to dust. We see some of that very disobedience in verse 2. For rather than trusting in the Lord, they were looking elsewhere. We see in verse 2 that they were looking to household gods, little idols passed down within families from one generation to the next, sometimes even representing their own ancestors. It would be like praying to your dead great-grandfather to bring the rain. Or they could consult various diviners who would try to foretell or magically somehow control the future. Now, these were things that, of course, had been forbidden by the Lord. But not only were they forbidden, but verse 2 says they utter, they are utter nonsense and lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. The Hebrew term here for empty consolation, you might be familiar with it. It's the word hevel, vanity, emptiness. The same term found Repeatedly in the opening of Ecclesiastes. It's something without substance that the wind blows away. You cannot depend on these things. But since God's people were looking to these things rather than to the Lord, they had become like wandering sheep afflicted for lack of a shepherd. They needed to turn to the Lord, to the one true shepherd. Think of yourself. Perhaps it's not a need for rain that tempts you to turn away from the Lord today. But what are the modern day equivalents? Just like they needed a rain, you need food to eat, reliable work, a place to live. And often we expect much more than just the necessities. We are tempted away from the Lord, not just by our needs, but by our desires. Where do you go when you aren't getting the things that you desire? Do you ask the Lord and seek him only? Or do you go to other sources? And while you might not be going to household gods, there are many modern day diviners. There's all sorts of new age mysticism. People are still tempted today by astrology horoscopes by the occult. All this has even come into the church through the health and wealth gospel, which says you just need to name it and claim it and believe it, have enough faith, and the Lord will give it to you whatever you want. But these things are utter nonsense and lies which give empty consolation. Said so the Lord says, you need to look to me. Trust in me, the one true shepherd. And we demonstrate our trust through obedience and simple prayer. Return to the Lord, your one true shepherd. The problem in Zechariah's day was that the people were like wandering sheep, afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And so second, we see that the Lord provides leadership for his flock. Verse three, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. And will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Here the Lord expresses hot anger against the shepherds and leaders of his people. In context, it was 
partly the failure of these leaders that was allowing the people to go astray, to turn to these household gods and diviners instead of the Lord. Perhaps the leaders were even promoting these idols and diviners. And so the Lord in his hot anger says he will punish these false shepherds. And in verse 4, we see that he will replace them with new and better leaders. We also see something amazing here in verse 3. In his care for the flock, the Lord will transform the house of Judah from being like a sheep to become like his majestic steed. Now, if you remember last time, we talked about horses and we compared the horse, the noble horse, to the humble donkey. And here we see the Lord's own horse described as having his royal majesty. And the Lord will transform his people from being like these wandering sheep to being like this majestic steed, a war horse, majestic in battle. Next we see the Lord's provision of new and better leadership with a series of metaphors in verse 4. From him, from the Lord, that is, shall come the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together. These are metaphors that describe what kind of leaders the, God, the Lord will raise up for his people. First he says, there will come the cornerstone. This refers to a, a foundation stone. A large stone which gives stability and strength to an entire building. Second, there's the tent peg. It's similar to a cornerstone. It provides support to the object it holds up. It could refer to a, a stake in the ground which helps the tent to stand up. Or it could also refer to a peg on a wall which holds up and supports whatever hangs from it. In both cases, the, the stake or peg it is a picture of stability and strength on which others depend. And so it's another good picture of a strong and stable leader. Third, there is the battle bell. This moves from architectural imagery to warrior imagery, a, a picture of military leadership. And then fourth, the, from the Lord comes every ruler, all of them together. So the Lord, he provides leadership. Then in verse 5, we see he is the strength of his people in battle. Because of the Lord's presence, the people are now all of a sudden from being these wandering sheep, they are mighty warriors, great heroes in battle. And there's this picture of ground troops defeating cavalry, putting them to shame. Now normally, ground troops would be no match for cavalry. But it is accomplished. This impossible feat is accomplished because the Lord is with them. He makes them like his majestic steed. He makes them mighty in battle to overcome their enemy. Oh, I've given this general sense of these verses, but now we need to ask, what are they referring to? How are they fulfilled? Now, it's possible that they are referring to a, a physical battle, and therefore they would be fulfilled during the days when the Maccabees overthrow Greek rule, and they won Jewish independence. But really, I think these are primarily looking forward to Christ's coming, and therefore they are fulfilled in his coming. And that means that this language of warfare, it's not referring to a physical battle, but rather to spiritual warfare. As our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. And that means that Verse 4, it's speaking of the Lord's provision of leaders for his people. And it's clear on one hand that this is 
referring to more than one leader, but it also has these images that seem to be pointing to Christ, a messianic prophecy. So how does this work? It is pointing to Christ, but Christ at the same time provides other leaders for God's people. And so think of Matthew 9, 36 to 38. When he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He sees all the people without shepherds. And he's saying, pray that the Lord would send out harvesters, send out leaders. And that's not the end of the story, because right after that, he sends out his own disciples on a mission to do the very work of preaching and healing, of spreading the gospel of the kingdom. He sent them out to be the very shepherds that he saw that the people needed. And so, in fulfillment of this verse 4, we have Christ who by his own testimony is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. As the cornerstone and the foundation of our faith, uh, he is the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ. Jesus is also the tent peg, the savior on whom we all depend. He is the battle bow, who through his death and resurrection wins the great victory over all our spiritual enemies. But as the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus also raises up under shepherds to care for his people. He initially ordained 12 apostles, one of whom, you know, betrayed him and was lost, who he later called the Apostle Paul. And since that time, he has continued to raise up pastors and elders to watch over his sheep. And so even as we look to our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, we also follow after under shepherds whom the Lord has raised up to lead us. Leaders are God's provision. We need godly leaders. But even the leaders, we too are sheep who must follow the chief shepherd. And so I would say, pray for us, your leaders. We need your prayers. We're all sheep following after the great shepherd. We all depend on him and trust the Lord, our shepherd, who provides for us all. So, secondly, we see how the Lord provides leadership for his flock. Third, the Lord saves his flock in a second exodus. As we come to the second half of the chapter, verses 6 through 12, a few things, big things I want you to notice. First, notice there's a shift in the language. In this section, the Lord speaks in the first person singular all throughout. He's declaring over and over again, this is what I myself will do. It's very direct, it's very personal, as the Lord is addressing his people. Second, this section is bracketed with a repeated phrase at the beginning and end. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. In verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives strength to his people. And then third, we see this section, it's dominated by the imagery 
of the Exodus. Just as in the New Testament, when you think of salvation, your mind goes immediately to Jesus giving his life on the cross and then rising again three days later. When you think of salvation in the Old Testament, your mind should go to the Exodus, the Lord bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt. And so, as the imagery of the Exodus is evoked throughout this passage, we know that the Lord is speaking of a great salvation. So verse 6, it begins, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. By mentioning Judah and Joseph, the most prominent of the, the southern kingdom of Judah, it says he'll strengthen them. They've already come out of exile. But he also says here, Joseph, referring to the northern kingdom, he says he will save them as well. He will bring them back. Then in verse 7, he mentions Ephraim. There's perhaps a little more emphasis then on the northern kingdom, the restoration of those northern tribes referred to as Joseph or Ephraim, the son of Joseph. These were the tribes that were far more rebellious than Judah. They had rebelled against the Davidic king. They had fallen far further into idolatry. And they were the ones who had been taken into exile far earlier by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., By the time of Zechariah's prophecy, here now in the early 500s BC, they had already spent more than two centuries into exile among the nations, far longer than Judah's 70 years of exile. Now the big picture here is the salvation of all Israel, all of God's people being restored to him. For in Zechariah's day, there were still many of Judah who were still far away, scattered in exile. But this promise of restoration It must have seemed amazing in Zechariah's day to save all of Israel, to reunite north and south, which had been divided for over 500 years at this point. What an amazing, glorious prophecy this was. This was a salvation so great that it could only have been accomplished in one way, through the coming of the Messiah. And we know who that was, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we've been seeing all throughout the prophecy of Zechariah, that this whole book has been coming and pointing forward to his coming. It's only with Christ's coming and the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, those who were descended from Joseph, the house of Joseph, and then to the ends of the earth, that the house of Joseph, the lost northern tribes, could be brought back to the Lord and the whole house of Israel could be restored. And so you see, throughout this passage, the language of the Lord's gathering his people. It's all throughout these verses. Let's do a quick survey. Verse 6, I will bring them back. In verse 8, I will whistle and gather them in. This is the language of a shepherd whistling to call his sheep to return to him. It's just like the Lord Jesus said, his sheep will know his voice, and they will come. They will recognize his whistle call and follow him. Then in verse 9, Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. It's all this gathering, coming, bringing them back. And when the gospel was going out in the early days of the church, the scattering of God's people all across the face of the ancient world, it actually served as a jumpstart for missions, spreading the message far and wide. 
And in verse 10, this one's a little more complicated, but again, you'll see this language of gathering, of bringing them back. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Now, this is one final description of this great gathering. But here, I believe it is speaking of a spiritual return using symbolic language. When Moses had led the people out of Egypt to the promised land, they entered by first passing through the rich lands of Gilead. That was the land on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this happened once, but it wasn't ever repeated. Now, if the northern tribes had ever returned from exile in Assyria, they would have entered the promised land through the rich land of Lebanon, just to the north of Canaan. Historically, this never happened. And so, I believe this verse is describing in symbolic language those who return to the Lord by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It describes this great ingathering of the gospel in terms of first a second exodus from Egypt to Gilead and a return from exile from Assyria to Lebanon. The Lord gives his reasons then for this salvation in verse 6. Why does he do it? Why does he save all his people? Because I have compassion on them. Not because they've earned it. Not because they are righteous. No, there is none righteous. Not even one. And simply because God has mercy on whom he has mercy, he has compassion on whom he has compassion. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. And then it says that his salvation is a complete restoration. They shall be as though I had not rejected them. What a wonderful description of the Lord's forgiveness, of how he deals with our sins completely, casting them into the depths of the sea, removing them from us as far as the east is from the west. And he gives the second reason for this. For I am the Lord their God. This is the language of the Lord's covenant and commitment to his people. The Lord's covenant love. And the response is rejoicing. Verse 7. Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Here we see their strength restored to this northern tribe of Ephraim and the great rejoicing in their salvation. The children even recognize that the victory comes from the Lord, and so they too rejoice in the Lord and in their salvation. We see the promises for them and for their children. There's one final depiction of this and with an emphasis on it as a second exodus in verse 11. He shall pass through the sea of trouble, strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Here we get this imagery of the Lord leading his people through the Red Sea. Here it's referred to as the Sea of Troubles. The Lord takes his people through the troubles, and as he goes, he's striking down the waves of the sea. He dries up the river Nile. There are so many references in the New Testament to how Christ fulfills this second exodus. One of my favorites is on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus' veil is pulled back for a moment. 
Usually he's veiled in humility and you don't see how glorious he is. But there his glory is revealed as he's meeting with Moses and Elijah and it says that they were discussing his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, Luke 9.31. But there's so many more. He's also our Passover lamb, the Passover which was that defining miracle which allowed them to leave Egypt The Passover lamb whose blood is shed so that we might shelter under his blood to be set free from our bondage to sin and death. And just as the Israelites, after they escaped from Egypt, ate in the wilderness manna from heaven, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 And just as God provided water to flow from the rock, So Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 through 38. In other words, Jesus is saying, because I have accomplished this great second exodus, I can meet all your spiritual needs. Simply come to me. Simply believe in me. He was the one who saved his people in the first exodus. And he has now delivered his people again in a great second exodus in the New Testament. The passage unclosed with the proper response to so great a salvation. One response we already saw in verse 7 was a great rejoicing in the Lord. But then there's a second in verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk. In his name, declares the Lord. To walk in the name of the Lord, what does it mean? Just as we pray in the name of the Lord, meaning that we pray in accordance with his will, so also to walk in his name means to walk according to his will. To walk in his ways, to walk under his lordship, to walk in order to honor him. Since he has saved us, now we live for him out of gratitude for his great mercy. This is not earning our salvation by our works. There's nothing in this passage to indicate that at all. The overwhelming message of this passage is not what we do, but it's all about what God says he will do for us, his people. That's why it's over and over all again. I, I, I. He says, I will strengthen. I will save. Because I have compassion, I will answer. I have redeemed and I will bring them home. It's all about what the Lord does for his people because of his love. And after you have trusted in the Lord, your shepherd, and received this love, then you simply respond in gratitude to the grace of God. And you give him all the glory for the wonders he has done for you. He is the good shepherd. If you know this, then you will put your trust in him. And if you have received so great a salvation, then you will respond with rejoicing and walking in his name. Trust in the good shepherd. Look to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you, our God, for you are our good shepherd. You provide for us so that we have no lack. You provided 
most of all for our salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son, our righteousness. And yet help us to continually look to you for every need. For we know that we are sheep, and our constant tendency is to wander and go astray. We don't even realize we are doing it. So Lord, keep us on that narrow path that leads to life. Help us to walk in your name so that you might be glorified in us and through us. Help us to honor you and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.